0: I suppose that probably the most famous ship to ever sail is a boat by the name of the, U- uh, the RMS Titanic. It was an impressive ship for its day. It was large, or 882 feet long, had a 92.5 beam, in other words, it was 92.5 feet wide. It, it cal- carried... Um, 329 passengers in first class, 285 passengers in second class, and 710 passengers in third, as well as a great deal of cargo. But the thing that made the ship famous in its day was it had been built with new technology, and it was designed to be a ship that could handle anything the way that they built it. They had designed it to have lo- <coughs> excuse me, watertight compartments, and it was said that it could float even though two... Maybe three of those compartments were flooded. In fact, they were so confident in their design that that the builders of the ship made the boastful claim that the boat was indeed unsinkable. Today it's a story of legends. Because We all know that story. They sailed out of Liverpool. They headed toward the east coast of the United States, a full complement of passengers on board. Some of them in the, in the upper decks were the kind of people that, that uh, were accustomed to the finer things of life, while in the lower portions of the boat, the common and poor people were migrating from Europe to the United States. Everyone was looking forward to a peaceful and exciting passage. And then they hit an iceberg. And then the unthinkable happened. The unsinkable ship began to sink quickly. It's a funny thing about things that we build, but there's always liabilities built into them. There's always things that we don't see that just end up kind of coming around the backside. Today, we look at the Titanic and we recognize that probably the issue wasn't the design. It wasn't the steering. It wasn't the captain or the inattention of some of the people on deck. The major flaw in the boat was it was made with a new, relatively uh, good steel that gets very, very brittle when it's in cold water. The boat, although it was unsinkable in design, its very, very components allowed it to become extremely fragile. Last week, we started a series of sermons that we called Vintage, where we started back in the very beginning, and we've taken a tour through the Scripture to take a look at the major stories of the Old Testament leading up to the great story of the New Testament and the birth of Jesus. And we noticed a couple things in that story that we took took a look at last week with Adam and Eve. They were in a garden in a place of perfection. God provided for them so many wonderful things, but their nature was weak. Because of that, Satan comes into the garden and he convinces them that God's plan is not ultimately the best plan. And he paints for them a picture of a, of a new plan, a, a plan where they're as wise as God and, and they have things figured out and they're on more of an evil, even uh, relationship with God, Satan all the, t- all the while knowing that the very thing that he was saying to them was nothing but lies. That in the moment they enjoyed the most close, personal, wonderful relationship with God, in the moment that they took that fruit from the tree, all of that would be Shattered. This morning, we're going to move on in that story, and we're going to take a look at the next chapter of human history. What is it that happened next? Certainly, Adam and Eve were, were, were forced to leave the garden. God provided for them a, a clothing made out of the, the animal skin, a skin of an animal. Something had to be sacrificed for them to find this opportunity to have covering. But how did their decision affect them in the next chapter of their lives? If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to grab those with me. And and why don't you turn with me to Genesis, the sixth chapter. But I want to pick up where we left off last week. Because if you remember, we we said that, that sin destroys. And really, you don't find the true total of the destruction of sin until you get to Genesis, the sixth chapter. It's in Genesis, the sixth chapter, and a little bit in the fifth chapter that you begin to recognize that the sin of Adam and Eve began to take a personal effect on on themselves, their family, and the culture at large. Remember last week we finished up by saying that when we sin, it takes a great effect on us personally. It leads to things like shame and fear and blaming and guilt. And those, those, those emotions really begin to wear us down. They become what we call often proverbially a burden that we're carrying, right? And we have an opportunity to lay that burden at the foot of the cross. But that was really just the proverbial tip of the iceberg. The real damage of the decision that Adam and Eve made that day in the garden remained hidden from their sight underneath the waters of time. But they would soon recognize what that was. Because it wasn't long before the consequence of their sin began to affect their families. I want you to know this morning that the effects of your sin are not just contained to your life. If they were, that would be very much easier. And Satan wants to convince us sometimes, hey, the only person that's getting hurt here is you. The only person that's affected by this is you. But guys, that's just not the way it works. And the book of Genesis lays this out for us. If you were to flip back a few pages into Genesis, the fourth chapter, you would find that the two brothers, Cain and Abel, offspring of Adam and Eve, both came and brought sacrifices to God. Abel brought a lamb from his flock, while Cain brought fruits and vegetables from his garden. And we don't know why, although we kind of infer that, that maybe Cain didn't bring the appropriate sacrifice, but the Bible simply tells us that, that one sacrifice was accepted while the other one was rejected. Abel's was accepted, Cain's was rejected. That wasn't that big of a deal. God's grace was going to cover that. There could be a correction and sacrifice. Cain could amend the sacrifice and come back to God and everything would have been good. But the result of Adam and Eve's sins were about to be visited in their own family. And just like the passengers on that Titanic that night as they snuggled into their beds, completely unaware of the disaster that was about to hit their ship, Adam and Eve and their children we're living in a world completely unaware of the disaster of sin that was they were about that was about to be visited upon them. In fact, we read in verse number six of Genesis, the fourth chapter, that God comes to Cain and has a conversation with Cain because God knows what's underneath the waters. God knows what's ahead of them in, in, in the ocean of time. And, and God comes to Cain and He says, Cain, let's talk about this. Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? What's going on here, Cain? If you do well, will you not be accepted? We don't have time to talk about a lot of this this morning, but, but I do want to just point out really quickly that, that God is coming to Cain and saying, Cain, hey, you can make a change. If you're here today and your life isn't what you know God wants it to be, I want you to know that you can make a change today. Cain could have made a change today. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Now, this is God talking to Cain right here. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. CSV version in the IV, it says that, that its desire is to destroy you, but you must control it. But in verse number eight, the Bible records this tragic turn of events. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in a field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Adam and Eve were walking in a garden, reached out and took a piece of fruit from a tree that God says, don't eat from that. And within a generation, one of their sons will kill the other son. I'm here this morning to tell you that sin is not a joke. It's not something that we can take lightly. Sin has consequences. And they're not just for you personally. They're not just for me personally. But they will affect the very people that you love the most, your family. It's not just Adam and Eve that had to deal with this tragedy. There are generations upon generations of families who had to deal with that. And it's shocking to me how quickly sin progresses from the Garden of Eden to murder between brothers. Sin is horrible in its own right and it has real consequences on our personal souls. But sin also is a catastrophe to the people that we love the most you can ask lot who saw his sin take away the lives of his sons-in-laws and his daughters and his wives his wife excuse me and in the end his own sin led to this incestuous relationship that that caused a whole generation of people to to come up in the world. You can ask Jacob and Esau about the deceit of scheming against one another or being short-sighted in your vision. You can ask Laban, whose double dealing made his own daughters want to leave him. You can ask Joseph uh, about his brothers who sold him into slavery. You can fast forward to Achan, who saw things, took it, buried it underneath his tent, and because of his sin, his entire family lost their lives. You might look at Ananias and Sapphira, who got together to cook up a plot and came before the Holy Spirit and before Peter and said, hey, this is all the money that we've sold from this this sale of a property, and it wasn't. And because of that, both of them were carried out and buried together in the same day. Even David. The man after God's own heart was told that the sword shall never depart from your house. And if you know the story of David after, the, incest, after the, the adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, the story of David's life is not the story of power and of godliness and of blessing that it was before that instance. Sin will affect our families. The most damaging event will be on the innocent victims that we love the most. And if we're unconvinced by the pleadings of God's word or the pleadings of God to Cain, life experience can show us that to be very true. We all know those stories. We can all look around and recognize that other people's sin led to bad things happening in our lives. It's how it works. Sin destroys us personally from the inside out, making us deal with emotions that really human beings are not designed to deal with, But it also destroys our families. And then we see in the book of Genesis as it moves forward that not only does it destroy the immediate family of Adam and Eve, but as they, as generations upon generations began to multiply and fill the earth, which was God's commandment to them, sin began to destroy the very fabric of the culture in which they lived. Here we arrive in Genesis the sixth chapter and verse number five. It says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Now, I want you guys to know if you've ever read through the lineages in the front part of the book of Genesis, they're interesting. If you're a bit of a nerd, um, you'll find them fascinating. This is not long after Adam and Eve have passed. The, one of the biggest tragedies in my mind about the whole sin that Adam and Eve entered or brought into the world is that they lived uh, centuries and watched generation upon generation follow in the path that they had chosen initially. And not only did they watch them follow in that path, but they saw them go deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness until we get to this point in Genesis 6, chapter, where God sees that the wickedness of man is great on the earth. And notice how the book of Genesis describes it. It says that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Everything that someone set out to do had evil behind it. Every thought that they thought about as they laid in their bed at night was evil in its intent. These people had been thoroughly permeated by the power of sin, by the decision that had been made just a few generations before, by the first two people to ever be created. It's so bad that we find this in verse number 6. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man that I have created from the face of the earth. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is probably one of the lowest spots that we can find in the entirety of scripture. Human wickedness has become so unimaginable That the very creator that formed mankind out of the dust of the ground and from a rib taken out of the original man looks at the creation that he has made and it looks so different from anything that he imagined that he decided it was time to simply wash it clean. When you think back to Genesis 1 and 2 when God looks at his creation and he says it is good and then when he looks at Adam and Eve together and he says it's very good. Oh, what a cliff. The culture had fallen off of. And guys, the driving force behind that drop was sin. We live in a world today that celebrates sin. We find it entertaining. We find violence to be entertaining. If you read in this text, we'll, we'll run across this a little bit more, but, but God will say the world is full of violence. Guys, God does not think violence is entertaining. We find it interesting because it appeals to some part of our human nature that is not our good part. I don't know what the world was like before the flood, but I have an idea about me that it was very advanced, but very, very broken. Now, God could have just washed everything clean. There would be no account of the book of Genesis. There would be no need for a a savior to come into the world. But this was not how God operated. It wasn't how he operated in the beginning. And it's not how he operates today. And in the midst of this great darkness that we see here in Genesis 6 chapter, where the culture has been corrupted by sin, the family of Adam and Eve have been corrupted by sin, and generations of individuals have been broken by the effects of sin in the middle of this mess of darkness. God decides to form a partnership with one righteous man and his family. You feel alone in this world? We are a little bit more alone than we used to be, but it's not down to one righteous man. Look around the room this morning. There's a lot of great people that have gathered here together. Now, none of us are perfect, neither was Noah. Noah. But we love the Lord, as did Noah. We want to serve the Lord and try to be as good a people as we can, as did Noah. And this is but one church and in, in thousands upon thousands of churches that are scattered through our country and through our world. Noah is alone in the world. Noah's family is alone in the world. And yet we find this powerful phrase in Genesis 6 chapter and verse 8. But Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first time the word grace is used in Scripture. It's the first time that we're introduced to the concept that makes our God different than all other gods. It's the first time that we are, we are immersed in an understanding that even though we are helplessly broken, our Heavenly Father is looking for the slightest shimmer of light and a willingness to follow Him. In verse number nine, it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. I'm kind of condensing some of this. You guys can read through this. This is a big story. So you guys are going to have to read it if you've never read it this week. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Genesis feels like it needs to remind us of this again. And the world, the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Here's something that God just infers here in this text, and I'll just mention that I didn't add it in the former section, but sin doesn't just affect the cultures, it doesn't affect the families, and it doesn't just affect the individuals. But it appears from this text that sin had in fact affected the entirety of creation. Even the other things that were made had been affected by the behavior, the sinful behavior of these people. And there's three things that I want you guys to notice this morning that I think are encouraging for us as we read through this darkest chapter of human history. And the first one is this, that no matter the situation, no matter how dark the world gets, no matter how crazy things are, no matter how much violence is in the world or evil perpetrates, is perpetrated against others, God is in control. If there was ever a time to doubt God's sovereignty, it might have been right here. Every thought and intention of man's heart was evil continually, but no person in no situation has ever escaped the sovereignty of God. I know that God is in control of everything, but I hardly ever stop to think about the fact that God is in control of all the chaos that's going on in the world around me. Maybe some of you guys are like me and we flip on the news or we scroll through the news on our phones and we're, we're looking at some of those things. We're checking out some of those things and we begin to find ourselves worrying. How are we going to fix this? How are we going to manage this? What happens if, guys, God has always been in control? But God's grace allows for us to have free will to choose. The world had all chosen to choose violence and sinful behavior and wickedness. Every thought and intention of the heart was evil continually except one man and his family. And even in the midst of that sea of darkness, there was one man whose light remained lit, and that is Noah. And God will take this one man, imperfect as he was, and tell and create one of the most powerful stories of the Old Testament narrative. You know, sometimes even in the life of Jesus, we see this juxtaposition of brokenness and God's power and might. In Mark, the ninth chapter, Jesus takes his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. They go up on top of a mountain. And while they're up there, Jesus is what we call transfigured, all right? His, His... Real glory is kind of for a moment bestowed upon him. And he has a conversation with two of the Old Testament heroes of the faith, right? And Peter and James and John are all blown away. Peter wants to build tabernacles. God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased to focus everyone's attention on the real purpose of that event. And as you might remember, they came off the mountain. Mountaintop experience, wonderful moment. Back into the valley, into the middle of an argument. An argument between a father, the remaining apostles, and the Pharisees, and the other people who followed Jesus around, constantly trying to poke a hole in the relationships that he had, both with God and with other people. The problem was, his father had brought a son to Jesus to be healed, uh, and that Jesus was, of course, up on the mountainside, the young man was possessed of a demon, and uh, and. The disciples had attempted to cast out the demon, but they had failed in doing so, and it had created one of those just absolute debacles. It had to have been an embarrassing situation for everyone involved. And as Jesus arrives on the scene, the father comes up to him and questions Jesus and almost questions his ability to do it. You know, it's sad, guys, but I think I should say here that when we fail, and we will, But when we fail, it doesn't just make us look bad. It makes our heavenly father look bad as well. And in this moment, Jesus exercises such patience coupled with such truth. And Jesus says to him in this, in verse 23, he says to the father, the the father says, if you can heal my son, please do it. That's That's the predicating phrase here. And Jesus jumps back at him. He says, if you can all things are possible for the one who believes. And this father repeats back a prayer that I find myself more and more praying every day. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And of course, the spirit responded to the voice of the master of the universe. Notice what that father said, though. He said, "I believe, but help me in my unbelief." Sometimes I know we look around the world today and we're like, "I, I, I don't, I, Lord, I don't see a solution to the to the political problems. I don't see a solution to the global issues. I don't see the solution to my family crisis. I don't see a solution in my marriage. I don't see a solution in my finances. I don't see a way through this sin." I believe, but help me. Help me in my unbelief. I believe this morning that God has control of everything, but that's easy to say now. It's hard to say when the doctor walks in and says it's cancer or when a child is going in a direction that you don't want to see them go or death has visited your immediate family. Those are the times where we pray as this honest father prayed, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. The story of Genesis 6 moves on in this way. It says, God says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out. This is how you shall make it. In length it shall be 300 cubits. In breadth it will be 50 cubits. In height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it with a cubit above. Set a door on the side of the ark. Make it, in, make it with lower and second and third decks. For behold, I will bring great flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh Uh, in which there is breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. The second thing I want you to notice this morning in this list of three is this. God is in control, but we have to follow his lead. He comes to Noah Noah, and he says, Noah, this is what we're gonna do. I want you to build this ark. I'm gonna give you exact dimensions. I'm gonna give you the kind of wood. I'm gonna give you the interior layout of this. I would assume that God gave Noah even more specific details, but for the sake of brevity, the book of Genesis just gives us the rough understandings. And it will take approximately 100 years for Noah to complete this project. And I'm certain that there were a million times in the middle of that project that Noah thought to himself, there's got to be an easier way to do this. What if I did it like this? Does it really need three decks? Can it have two? But notice what it says in verse 22 of Genesis. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Guys, it's a really powerful lesson for us in this. There's some things that don't make sense to us. And there's some things in life that just absolutely make sense to us. We think this is the way it should be done. There's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, it's death. Adam and Eve thought it was a brilliant idea to reach out and take the fruit from the tree. It was not. They visited all kinds of grief on themselves, on their family, and on the world at large. Noah did exactly what God said. If you read the finishing part of the story, Noah's eventually, Noah finishes the ark. God says, okay, it's time for everyone to get in. Loads up two of every kind of animal. Loads up seven of the clean animals. Loads up his family, his children, his daughter-in-laws. God shuts the door, and they sit there a week. A week with nothing going on but it was coming. See, what Noah received is a brilliant opportunity, but you've received an even brighter one. While Noah saved uh, humanity in a sense that he saved his immediate family, and from Noah's offspring, the entire world would be repopulated again, you and I have an opportunity to do something equally as special. We have been given an open invitation to partner with God as well. Because God comes to Noah in the beginning of this in verse 18, and he says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing, I will bring two into the ark to keep them alive with you. And we don't have time this morning because uh, we've got a, a, a neat end into the, the sermon this morning. But every Mesopotamian culture, guys, has, has, a, has a great flood story. Every one of them does. But there's one difference between the, the, the Gilgamesh epic or the other writings. And that is that after the flood, God comes and he sets up a covenant with the people. In the Gilgamesh epic, they destroyed the world and they they kind of felt bad about it afterwards. And in some of the other epics, uh, the gods got in a fight and it, it boiled over into a great flood to hit the world. But in the Genesis account, there's something very different because this isn't some fairy tale. This is a story specifically told about an event that will happen thousands of years later when God will send his own son into the world to finish a covenant that he starts And after the flood has ended, the waters have receded, and Noah and his family and the animals have left the ark, God comes to him in verse number 12 of Genesis 9 and says, This is a sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all the future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. God made a covenant with Noah to bring salvation in the world. And although that salvation would be an incomplete salvation, the salvation that God brought through His Son, Jesus Christ, was a complete salvation. The writer of Hebrews will reference this powerful story. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And the writer of Hebrews says By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet as unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. This is one of the first activities that we see in the Bible where the grace of God gives an undeserving person an opportunity to act on faith and to accomplish something extraordinary. Now, God's call to every one of us this morning is different. But this morning, as we close our service, we'll be joined by a young man who grew up here in Louisiana and went to Bible college, graduated last year. And in his return, he is desiring that he might go and share the message of the gospel to the people who are on the island of Japan. That's a difficult assignment. If you know a little bit about Japan, it's a culture very different than ours, and he will tell you about that, a language very different than ours, a challenge that maybe some would say is bigger than what we can handle. But when God calls us to go in a particular direction, God will always provide the resources that we need. And so as we finish this story this morning about a man who is called into a joint mission, um, we're going to hear from a young man that is preparing to go on a mission to serve in a foreign country. If you guys would, would you help me in welcoming Mr. Cade this morning.?
1: grew up in the church, Westview Christian Church up in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, son of a youth minister, son, grandson of the head pastor up there. Um, but I grew up uh, blessed to be able to know the gospel from a young age, knowing that Jesus is my savior. Um, I was baptized whenever I was six years old at church camp. Uh, my dad baptized me there uh, in the very, very cold pool that's there. Um, but I decided I wanted to go into ministry, um, so I went to Ozark Christian College. And, and while I was there, um, I wanted to study to do church planning, to come down here and with my brother in Louisiana and start some more churches. Um, but I was confronted with a, with a need that I hadn't really thought about. Um, and so what I saw was that there are places where millions of people are, but they don't even know who Jesus is. Um, the one that created them, and the one uh, that is their savior. Uh, They don't even know who he is. And I want to talk about this place uh, that I I saw. It's Japan. And so um, I decided while I was in college I was going to go to Japan uh, for a week to visit an organization called Mustard Seed Network and uh, see what they're doing over there. And while we were in Japan, uh, we were walking around. I got to go to Tokyo. Super big city. Um, It stretches like all the way to the horizon. It never ends pretty much. And there's millions of people. And as we walked around, we walked around one of the busiest places in the world, uh, Shibuya. And uh, two million people go through this train station a day, right? And so as we were walking around, uh, the mustard seed workers issued us a challenge. Go around and count a thousand faces. And so I did this to the best of my ability. Um, I can't really count a thousand on my fingers, so I lost track. But what I saw was people that kind of lacked joy, just kind of walked around doing their own thing. And, and whenever we came back, um, one of the workers expressed to us, he said, out of those a thousand people that you just saw, less than 10 of those people are Christian and the rest of them probably don't even know who Jesus is. And to be able to see that need firsthand, to see that many people, just be able to look this way, that way, this way, and probably anybody I run into doesn't know who Jesus is, it really overwhelmed me. And um, so I really want to do something about that. But um, I want to be able to show y'all kind of what that need looked like to me. So this is the best uh, visual I came up with. Is it? Is it up here? Oh, never mind going off the cuff, okay, so basically it was a it was a giant football stadium and and uh just a very small black dot is covered up, and it pretty much represents that it's just so many people yet yet not many of them know about jesus so um yeah, after seeing that, um I really felt a call that that I wanted to go. Um, and meet this need. So one of the biggest needs in Japan right now is the planning of new churches, right? There are only one church for every 16,700 people in Japan. Here in America, it's it's one church for every 800 people. Uh, missionaries are down 34% in the last 20 years, and over 50, oh, over 70% of pastors in Japan right now are over fifty years old, and around sixty percent of churches in Japan are less than fifteen people. So, just to reach Tokyo alone, which is a city of thirty million people, you would need over thirty million church, or over over a million churches, just to reach that one city. And so, this need is is huge. And Mustard Seed Network um, saw this need back in two thousand seven. Uh, Some graduates of Ozark Christian College decided that they wanted to go meet this need, compelled by the love of Christ for these people. And uh, so since then, they've planted eight churches. They started in Nagoya, Japan, and uh, they have a plan to have 12 churches in 12 cities um, by 2025. And and they're needing a lot of people uh, to come on board and to work for them. And so... um, the way I become a part of this is they're going to take me on and train me uh, to be a church planner in Japan so that the gospel can spread um, through the planning of new churches. And so what will happen is I'll go there. Um, right now, I need to I need to raise funds. That's my uh, process right now. But then after that, I'm going to go and learn the language for 18 months full time, 30 hours a week. Um, and then after that, um, they'll send me to a church, and I will be there uh, full-time in Japan. No plans on, on coming back. Uh, my mom's pretty upset about that. Um, but So that's, that's the plan right now. And so what I'm here to do is to ask you guys to support me, um, and I'm going to ask for three things from you guys. Uh, number one, I need prayer um, because... This all relies on the power of God, and so I want to ask you guys if y'all would commit to praying for, for me um, as I'm over there full time, and um, so also pray for the 99% that are there that don't know who Jesus is, that they would hear, and uh, pray for my heart to be prepared um, for this time. Also, uh, the second thing would be for support. Um, I need, I'm needing a lot of financial support uh, to be able to go over there. Japan is an expensive place um but uh i am needing 10,000 um dollars to raise just for the the one time thing before i go there and that pretty much sets me up for for language school um sets me up for the moving and the plane ticket and everything like that and then the other need i i have is 1800 a month um i'm needing to receive uh support full time while i'm there so that i can uh, be focused on spreading the gospel and uh, church planning, working at a church full time. And so, um, what I'm asking is that if I could get a hundred individuals to give twenty dollars a month, um, basically pretend like you're you're buying me a lunch every single month. Uh, sushi's expensive, so uh, if you could help with that, no. Um, but that's that's what I'm hoping for. And uh, yeah, I think we could do that. So, no, um, but I would really appreciate that. Um, And then another way you could help, uh, the last way, is connect with me. Um, I'll be at a table after church today, and if you have questions about the ministry, please come talk to me. Um, But I have a newsletter that I'm going to send out every month just explaining what's going on, what Mustard Seed is up to, and then uh, what, what I'm doing in ministry. And uh, I've already started that now, and uh, I'm sending that out to everybody's email. You can follow me on Facebook, and uh, follow Mustard Seed Network um, on Facebook as well, and then look up our website too. But um, that's really all I have right now. Um, If y'all would like to meet with me after church, I would love to talk more about this ministry. Um, But the need is huge, and uh, I want it met, so...
0: Appreciate it, Kate. Thank you so much for coming and sharing, and, and I hope that uh, you guys get a chance to meet with him afterwards. Uh, he was telling me this morning, in language school, well, you think 18 months of school? Do you guys know there's three alphabets you have to learn to speak Japanese? And one of them has, was it 6,000 or 2,000? It might as well have been 6,000 characters for me. 2,000 characters that you have to memorize just for one alphabet. Oh, my goodness. Um, May the Lord be with you, Cade. I'll pray for you in language school, actually. Uh, But um, what a neat opportunity to, I just wanted you guys to get to meet Cade, a young man that came from Louisiana that has a call that, yeah, a lot of people might say, that's crazy. You want to go to Tokyo? (laughs) You want to go to Japan? You want to share the message of the gospel? Sometimes God calls us to do things that are a little crazy. And uh, and we're just thankful that he is there to provide. And uh, we're thankful that Cade was willing to say, okay, God, if that's where you want me to go, I will go in that direction. We're going to stand together, church, and we're going to sing a closing song. And as we do, if you have a need this morning, if you have something in your life that you need prayer for, if you know it's time for you to make a decision for Jesus, don't leave here today unless you make that decision. Let's sing together.